Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jesse Prince, who is Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York. He works primarily in the philosophy of psychology and ethics, and has authored several books and articles addressing such topics as emotion, moral psychology, aesthetics, and consciousness. Welcome, Jesse. Wonderful to be here with you. As you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much. And thanks for doing this um, on, a, on a holiday. Um, and I want to start with one of your articles, uh, Biology, Culture, and Emotion. Um, and uh, you, you're looking at sort of the radiation in emotions or maybe the recognition of emotions across cultures. Uh, so, so before we get into the details of this, is there a sort of a crisp definition for emotion? What do we mean by emotion? Well, that is one of the most contested questions in the area, but there is a fair amount of convergence on the kinds of things that typically arise in an emotion episode. So most people studying an emotion will say, studying the emotions will say, emotions characteristically involve some kind of appraisal of the situation you're in, where you're recognizing that some event typically, though not always an event outside of the self, has some bearing on your well-being. Yeah. And in light of the specific kind of bearing, is it a threat? Is it an offense? Is it the satisfaction of a goal? You have a response, characteristically a physiological response, but it can also involve a response in your style of thinking or reasoning or understanding or perceiving. Yeah, And then you have an experience of that change. So if your body is preparing for a flight away from this potential threat, for instance, you'll have an experience of that bodily preparation. So the complete cascade of these uh, events, the appraisal, the physiological change, the change in thinking style, and the experience thereof give rise to what's characteristically thought of as an emotion. Okay. And so so to, to abstract a little bit, so given data and context, um, 
most humans have a response to that. Uh, do other observers um, understand that uh, fairly universally or there's a lot of noise in that response? There was a few, I think in many ways, it remains the orthodoxy though its position of uncontested um, authority has been weakened in recent years. There was a view that is universalist in its orientation. So Charles Darwin uh, wrote a book on the recognition of emotion in, in man and animals, and his view was that um, most of our emotions are based in our biology. They're shared by, um, by non-human animals, and their expressions are recognizable universally. And this gave rise to a cottage industry of research on cross-cultural emotion recognition. Uh, Darwin himself was the first to collect data on the recognition of emotions in cultures that were removed from Western Europe. And that continued uh, into the early part of the 20th century at a trickle. But in the 1960s, late 1960s, a group of researchers who were trained by a prominent emotion psychologist named Sylvan Tompkins set out to confirm Darwin's hypothesis. And the most famous of them, Paul Ekman, uh, collected data in the highlands of Papua New Guinea among a group of people called the Foray. And yes. he reported that six emotions, the six he studied, were recognized in precisely the same way by people who were at a far distant cultural remove uh, from the Anglophone um, West. That view became the textbook view. And uh, the thought that emotions can be recognized across context, across culture, across language um, would have been uh, a fact of science presented as an uncontested fact of science um, until fairly recently when uh, reanalysis of some of that work and a growing body of counterclaims has begun to reopen those debates. And I myself happen to fall on the, the opposing side thinking that Darwin's um, universalism was probably uh, significantly overstated. Hmm. And so it's sort of an, uh, a debate between hardware and software in some sense, right? Um, so if it is biology driven, the, these six um, sort of basic emotions, uh, if it is biology driven, if it's hardware driven, the chance of that being universal is a lot higher. Uh, but if it's not, then... Um, it's unlikely to be true, right? In a way, I would say the hardware-software distinction um, tends to get us into trouble with nature-nurture <laughs> debates because people feel they need to, to pick sides when, in truth, the position that tends to be right is a combination of the two. Uh, yeah. Sometimes people in, in artificial intelligence uh, talk about the, the human brain as having wetware, um, which is... Uh, both literally true, but also a kind of clever metaphor for capturing the idea that the physical apparatus through which we think and, and feel is, is highly plastic. So we have a bit of hardware like a computer would have, but unlike the wiring in your computer, our brains rewire with experience. So what we get from that picture is a, is a story according to which it's not that emotions are all cultural, nor is it that they're all biological. It's that from the, the earliest hours of life, these biological foundations are getting retuned and reshaped through socialization. 
So we have commonalities and we have emotions that have some degree of recognizability across contexts, but they also are subject to considerable social forces. Yeah, so I would I would imagine the expression of emotions and the recognition of it would have had some survival benefits early, right? It's hard to speculate, of course, about evolutionary past. In, <laughs> in this particular case, I would say um, a further limitation is emotion recognition is a skill we know to be fairly developed in humans, but it's less clear how good other uh, animals are at emotion recognition. So assumptions about its uh, contribution uh, to survival um, are, are quite uh, conjectural. We, we don't have beyond the exceptional case of things like alarm calls, um, which are quite kind of stereotyped in some non-human animals. We don't have evidence that um, fine-tuned emotion recognition is, is a key uh, to survival. Um, but um, there's no doubt that in contemporary life, emotion recognition is valuable, contributes to our, our uh, success and our fluid engagement in the social world. Uh, so there's every reason to think that that's been true for us from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, without a survival benefit, what would have been the reasons for its, uh, I'm just talking about humans uh, here, but what would have been the reasons for an expression of emotions? Darwin himself didn't think that most expressions were um, adaptive. He thought some of them just came accidentally from the you know, overflowing of, of energies in the, in the organism. So uh, he thought there were certain expressions like baring your teeth in anger uh, mm -hmm. that were holdovers from um, uh, other mammals who had large canines who could expose a potential a mm -hmm. weapon by baring their teeth. Um, there's a view that um, the goosebumps we get when afraid come from being descended from ancestors whose bodies were covered with hair. And if you grew um, your physical appearance by having your hair follicles stand on end, um, you might be um, a less tempting object of predation by a, a would-be aggressor. So there, there are some of these that are adaptive, but he himself thought many of them were not. And I, I do think, you know, emotion recognition um, for us in social contexts uh, sometimes may connect to recognition of a possibility of action. So if somebody raises their fists, clenches their, their fists in a way that implies aggression, yeah. uh, that's a direct signal um, that an action will take place. And there are authors, um, maybe most famously in recent literature, um, a psychologist named Alan Friedland, who claims that all emotion expressions are not conveying inner feelings, but rather the promise or potentiality of action. Um, but I myself think it's quite a stretch. If you think, for example, of our, some of our most recognizable expressions, like the tears we shed in sorrow, yeah. it's not clear that that's suggestive of any um, action we're about to perform. Maybe it can be thought of as a supplication a, you know, a way of uh, expressing our neediness and asking for assistance. So it, it has a potential communicative function and recognizing it might be of, of some value. Um, but I think the idea that we recognize emotions um, uh, need not be um, integral to the 
origins of these emotions in any evolutionary sense? Yeah, the, the, the tears are quite interesting. Uh, I don't know. It wasn't any, anything like sort of very, um, I remember something like uh, the, the tears um, really originated much, much later in, in human progression, perhaps even post-agriculture. Is that true or do we have any data? I think we don't have to, I mean, it would be difficult to, um, in, in general, say anything about human um, emotion in an evolutionary sense by basis of physical evidence of the archaeological record uh, prior to language would be, would be um, somewhat ambiguous on this. Um, tears are unusual in that it's said that we are um, the only animal that tears in sorrow or tears as an emotional expression. Um, there is some work suggesting the chemistry of, of tears differs uh, uh, when we cry from sorrow as opposed to crying from an irritant in the air, um, which suggests they're fairly late development. Um, but there's no doubt that the function of, of tears does seem to be quite social in nature and quite varied across social contexts. So, for instance, um, we have platitudes like boys don't cry. But if you look, for example, at the biblical references to, to crying, yeah. Um, not only do men cry, but, but you know, kings and prophets cry. Um, it's uh, considered an expression of, you know, of moral regard um, and also uh, a, an important way of expressing a sense of loss or mourning uh, to, to weep openly. And indeed, the displays of despair and grief uh, are in many countries still quite, quite ritualized. So... If you look, for example, at countries where there are professional mourners who come to a funeral in order to wail quite vocally, they've turned what might be thought of as a purely natural or instinctive expression into a kind of performance. And far from thinking of that as anomalous, I actually think that in a way, all of our emotions have a kind of performativity. And even when we take ourselves to be acting instinctively from our biological nature, those performances, those ways of expressing our emotion are, are culturally tuned. So whether or not crying um, as a actual physiological response, you know, dates to the Neolithic or earlier, there's no doubt that the way it's done and the meanings it has uh, are products of our continuing cultural development. Hmm. You, you described a lot of very interesting field studies um, in the paper, Jesse, and if I remember correctly, one of them is if you take blank faces uh, and you put them in a context, then the observer appears to be able to fill in the context to that face and, and then recognize that as, as, as some, some uh, emotion or something along those lines. Yeah, there's a a long interesting history of this idea, which um, includes contact with um, early cinema. So a very pioneering um, Soviet uh, filmmaker, Kuleshov, um, when editing was first being developed as a, as a technology for the production of film, um, he speculated that a neutral face, a face that decontextualized would have no emotional meaning whatsoever, could be perceived as everything is varied um, uh, as uh, from lust uh, to grief uh, to hunger, depending on it, whether it was paired with a casket in the case of grief, an attractive uh, person in the case uh, of lust, or 
a beautiful meal in the case of hunger. So he would edit film to pair this face with these different uh, precursor objects and argue that this changed the meaning. There has been empirical work in recent years that's that's consistent with that that finding. The effects are are, are subtle, um, but there's no doubt that a face, even um, showing a fairly strong emotion, um, can be perceived in radically uh, different ways. Sometimes um, the psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett illustrates this by showing a, a photograph of the face of Serena Williams just after winning a tennis tournament. And uh, it's such an extreme expression of an emotion that if you didn't know the context, you could equally see it as rage or despair when in fact it's probably euphoria. Yeah, I would guess that recognition of emotion is probably computationally costly uh, for the brain. Um, facial recognition is, is, at least initially, would have been computationally expensive. And so the brain would have created heuristics to sort of reduce that um, that cost in some sense. So, is it possible that um, you know, from a from a societal perspective, our ability to really understand emotions is declining? Do we have any data on that? <laughs> it's a good question. I obviously uh, our our abilities to to recognize emotion are greatly enhanced by the fact that visual culture has become such a consuming part of our life. So in yeah. some ways we're, we're at a, at a significant uh, advantage. Um, uh, though I, you know, I think in a way vision um, gives us so much information that the typical laboratory study where you're presented with a still face in, in a very stereotyped um, configuration is probably not that consistent with the normal context of emotion recognition. In a, a film setting, for instance, we have a lot of narrative content. Uh, we have verbal cues. We have uh, not just the face, but the posture. The face is dynamic. It changes over time. And the vast majority of emotions that people experience are not pure. We tend, except in cases of, of extremity, not to have you know just grief or just anger or just you know dis, uh, uh, disgust. We have uh, amalgams of those. And even just taking those three. Um, you know, the typical stimulus that would make us feel intense uh, grief, say a, a great political in, injustice that involves harm, would also make us feel disgust at the offenders and despair at the loss. So I, I think the, the likelihood is that visual culture has played a role in, in simultaneously increasing our sensitivity to various modes of expression, um, yeah. but also probably confronting us with such nuance that our laboratory experiments um, uh, would kind of misrepresent the, the ways in which actual emotion recognition works in the wild. Yeah. You're looking at sort of the cultural influence on, on emotions and the recognition of it. And uh, as you say, the visual culture we have now, social media like Facebook with 1.5 billion people on it or something along those lines, um, do you think uh, we are sort of standardizing emotions across the world, uh, that variation is declining? I, I think there is certainly reason to think that the uh, recognition of facial, rec uh, of facial emotions is, uh, is very subject to uh, aspects of social identity in ways that would suggest a lack of um, 
universalization. And that, that, that's impacting both the perceiver side and the um, emoter side. So for instance, there's a lot of ways in which emotion is gendered and raced and cultured and uh, also subjected to various cultural uh, biases and values. So women are discouraged from experiencing anger. People of color are perceived as being more angry than they actually are. There's research on what's called the, the resting bitch face, where, um, if you'll excuse the expression, where women showing a neutral face are perceived as more um, angry uh, mm -hmm. than they are. Um, so, you know, given these these kinds of norms, and also given just cultural differences in um, what are considered appropriate expressions and appropriate context for expression, we end up with enough variation both in the biases we bring to this as perceivers and in the actual dispositions we have as emoters um, to to flatten things out. I think given the, that variation, the likelihood of shared visual culture no, in no way guarantees greater universality. In fact, it might just deeply or more deeply entrench some of these variations. Hmm. That's really interesting. So um, how people express and recognize emotions um, are, are driven by the cultural context, the cultural aspects that they grew up in. And, and you describe a lot of experiments around this too, right? So. Uh, there is distinct differences between Eastern and Western cultures. Have there been any experiment to, you know, somebody who's sort of uh, grown up in the Eastern culture and then transferred to the Western culture? And how long does it take for that person to sort of redesign or re-engineer uh, the brain to, uh, to do things differently? There, some people posit um, what's called a cultural critical period. And the thought is if you um, acculturate, if you move to, to a new cultural setting um, early enough, uh, which usually means middle childhood, so that you spend your, your adolescence, the years leading up to your adolescence, through your adolescence in the new culture, there will be a high degree of assimilation. Um, unlike language, where, where it needs to be pre-adolescent, a lot yeah. of cultural development for us happens in teenage years. And that itself might be a, a cultural product. There, claims um, that the whole notion of teenage uh, life um, as a distinctive period in human biography is a fairly recent invention. But as a result uh, of that invention, we are expected during our teenage years to settle in on a bunch of our tastes and interests and our social patterns. It's a time where we come of age with respect to our social independence. We form groups of peers who become major sources of influence that exceed uh, the influence of our biological or, or um, rearing families. Um, and it's really at that time where things like musical taste get set down. So all of us as you know, 40 and 50 year olds still enjoy the tunes we were listening to as teenagers. Likewise, some of our emotional dispositions um, may be set down more firmly in that time. Um, I myself think the notion of a critical period, um, even for language, uh, needs to be taken with a grain of salt. It might be a kind of graded idea where we're more likely to settle into certain patterns at certain periods of our life. But um, I do think those can those can evolve and change over the lifespan as well. Yeah, I mean, we, we have one symptom, uh, which is accents. Um, 
which is you know there's a lot of data around accents when you when you shift to another language uh, there was a hypothesis that uh, after that critical period uh, every time you you express something the brain has to make a translation and there is a slight delay in that translation that shows up as an as accent in the uh, in the individual speaking i don't know what the what the latest thinking is on that but it is sort of related to emotions too right um you know it will be interesting to th- see if the brain is doing some sort of a translation to fit in yeah i i like that analogy i definitely think the the um the case of accent is instructive and so far as it's not fixed like if you think about an actor who maybe has you know taken on a part uh, well into adulthood where they have to say um have a South African accent and they're reared in Brooklyn, uh, they might do it imperfectly. They'll yeah. certainly do it effortfully, um, but they might be competent. And depending on how much energy they put into it, they they could pull it off. And one can, uh, if if one has a an accent, um, you know, well into adulthood, improve on that in various ways by developing skills. But it will it will be more effortful. And I think that kind of fluency with emotions. Um, may be similar. So somebody who immigrates uh, late, I mean, my, um, all my, my grandparents were, were refugees and um, came to the United States in adulthood and, you know, came in part because of um, a despairing relationship with their parent countries, came to really view themselves as American and, you know, tried very, very hard uh, to, uh, to exist here and assimilated to different degrees. And I do think, um, you know, came to be quite quite American in, in style in various respects. So Americans tend to be very confessional. They tend to be loud and, they, and expressive as compared to some other countries that are more, more reserved. Um, they're more he, he, hedonistic, more pleasure seeking. Mm-hmm. And I do think some of those emotional um, patterns, emotional habits are, uh, are learnable. Um, it's a jarring process and maybe one that the immigrant uh, will resist because their own sense of identity is, is threatened by that kind of transformation. Yeah. Um, but I think um, you know, many find it possible in adulthood to adapt. Yeah. I want to go into one of your books, uh, Culture, Psychiatry and Ontology. Uh, you say those who delve into cross-cultural research in psychiatry are often stuck by descriptions of mental disorders found across the globe. And uh, these are striking in both their range and unfamiliarity, you say. Um, so, so you talk about sort of culture-bound syndromes, something that I, I had no clue about, <laughs> Jesse. But it appears that different cultures have sort of different diseases and different symptoms, perhaps different diagnostic processes. So what exactly are we finding there? The, the term was introduced to capture something that people doing psychiatric work um, outside of their home culture um, were finding, which is that sometimes there are conditions, often with names, um, that are uh, actually quite common and widely discussed and and recognizable and understood by local population for which there is no clear analog back home. Um, An example of this, um, there are a a number of what are called hyper-startled disorders, um, 
the most widely discussed in the West is one called Lata, which is found in Southeast Asia, um, where a person will enter into a, a trance-like state. And in that state, uh, they'll show a series of, of quite striking symptoms. One of them, um, from which the term hyperstartle comes, is a very, very sensitive startle response. So uh, a, a sound that wouldn't cause a startle reaction uh, in us might cause a fairly pronounced uh, startle reaction in somebody in this state. Um, but other symptoms include uh, echolalia, where people repeat words that are said to them, um, yeah. and even things like um, uh, shouting or using uh, obscenities or, or language that's deemed inappropriate in ordinary social contexts. And the person who's undergone this uh, state transformation will eventually emerge from it and on emerging will sometimes be amnestic for the episode, meaning they won't, they won't recall having been through this episode. Mm -hmm. um, so to see someone go into a trance where their behavior becomes uh, quite, uh, quite unusual um, is for us uh, a jarring experience from a clinician's perspective. There's no doubt that such a state is more than a mere piece of performance in a conscious way. It's not an act. It's not theater. Um, it's physiological. There are ways in which these states relate to states that we can describe um, in physiological terms, like the, the state um, you might go into when you're hyperventilating. Um, but uh, on the other hand, we don't find this particular syndrome uh, here at home. So it, it's a disorder. Um, it's associated with uh, with mental stress or strife. It's mm -hmm. viewed in a in a uh, medicalized or equivalent way as a as a kind of um, you know adverse condition, um, and it's subject to you know local practices of of treatment. So the term culture bound was introduced to refer to such states, but of course it raised the question about our own uh, taxonomies of mental uh, disorder or mental illness at home. Are conditions that we think of as commonplace as as being rooted in biological um, abnormalities. We use phrases like chemical imbalance. And here yeah. I'm thinking of things like depression or anxiety, even schizophrenia, um, ADHD, obsessive compulsive, all those conditions that populate our medical textbooks in psychiatry. Maybe those are culture bound as well. Mm. What is sort of the, the deeper explanation for it um you know at least on the surface one would say you know we got 8.4 billion clones around the world there's systems you know there, there is no real difference in their genes so from a biological perspective we have near clones in different cultures um why are we finding certain syndromes in certain cultures what would be sort of the deeper explanation for it well, I, in, in one way, you can think about um, mental illness functionally. That is to say, you can think about mental illness as a way of coping, um, coping with trauma, coping with stress, coping with disability, various limitations that are placed on, on human life. Mm -hmm. And so construed, you can see immediately that there are many, many different ways to cope. Um, but there might be certain patterns of coping um, that... Uh, though flexible and showing a fair degree of variation, are are particularly suitable for specific contexts. 
And those are going to be extremely sensitive to cultural variables. So for instance, there's some evidence that in the West, um, women are, are somewhat more uh, likely than men to have mental disorders that are characterized as internalizing. That mm -hmm. is, they take stressors and, and, and pain and turn it inward on themselves, whereas men tend to be slightly more likely than women to have externalizing um, yeah. symptoms where they lash out at others. Uh, so something like psychopathy, which in, involves antisocial behavior, is diagnosed more frequently in men. And something like depression, um, where you turn turn inward and withdraw from society, is somewhat more likely um, in women. And if you consider a kind of patriarchal context where, where men do have more traffic with the world and are given more latitude for their anger and for behavior that is antisocial, the idea that stressors lead to lashing out. You know, men are the ones committing these mass shootings. Men are the one who you know, go postal, to use that phrase, because male, male frustrations and disappointments in life are given license to, to express in ways that harm others, whereas women are more socialized to engage in self-harm. So I, I think in a way you can think about the human, you know, universal, uh, human suite of options, um, mm. which is quite wide ranging, but, but has commonalities. And from this menu, um, cultural conditions will determine which items in this suite are more likely to occur. Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. You know, it's a mental disorder conditioned by culture in some sense, right? So the, the analog, uh, I think in some sense would be epigenetics. So it's not just your just your genes, but, you know, what you ate and where you lived and uh, what your gut bacteria looked like that ultimately results in diseases. It's sort of in a similar thing, but it's really, uh, it's not on, at the system level, but but more from a culture perspective. Yes, absolutely. And I do think you mentioned in the microbiome, all of those aspects of our environment um, outside of our, our genes um, and including things like diet, um, even uh, as we know from seasonal affective disorder, even, even the climate zone we live in and the amount of light we get, all those things are, are factors as well. So I think broadly holistic views of, of uh, mental health that take each of these things into consideration um, are the most promising. I do think there's a strong tendency though, even in those particular moves to the epigenetic, um, uh, the microbiomic too, to continue to privilege um, biology and our thinking about mental health, and yeah. to some detriment, obviously, um, you know, people with with mental um, uh, disorders do continue to seek psychotherapy and various uh, interventions that are treated at the level of the person, at the level of your your life conditions and experience. But this tendency to move to uh, to biology is part of a broader trend in, I think, contemporary society to, to want to think about these things in very mechanistic um, terms. And um, when we do that, um, it's a little bit like, you know, the concept of, of SOMA, where you give people a medical intervention that's designed to treat the symptom, where you think that the disorder is a kind of imbalance uh, in the brain, a metaphor that has no meaning, by the way. There's no, you know, balance of chemistry that we've ever measured or have a tool for measuring. But the idea that this is some chemical imbalance that we can correct pharmaceutically, 
um, is problematic, not because pharmaceuticals shouldn't be used to bring people relief and help them cope, but because it mislocates the problem in biology when very often it's life conditions and, and trauma and biography, um, it's cultural um, biases uh, that are at work as well. In the philosophy of disability and activism around disability, um, there's been a tendency to characterize disability not as a problem with the person, but as a problem of fit. So for example, um, Rosemary Garland Thompson, who's a disability theorist, uses the term misfit to refer to people with disabilities because it captures the way in which uh, the limitations on, on somebody's uh, achievements in the world are often imposed by the external environment. And the world is better suited for some kinds of bodies and some kinds of minds than for others. And if we think of the patient as a person with an internal problem that needs to be treated, as opposed to a human being located in a social setting, we'll sometimes make our interventions um, too, too restricted and miss out on the opportunity to improve the world. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Even, um, even if we uh, look at it mechanistically, Jesse, there is still, we, we have to at the very least understand that culture has a significant effect on your brain, on your body. And so you have conditions um, that, that have substantially changed the system and how it responds to uh, something is going to be quite different from culture to culture. So we have to at least, you know, we can still go to the reductionist approach yeah, if we like, uh, but even there you, you are missing a, a major attribute that affects what, what you're trying to treat. Absolutely. In, in some ways, the biological tendency is, is quite surprising because um, I think it's you know, manifest in an extreme way that human beings are shaped by culture. We need only open our eyes. So when I look around me, I'm, you know, I'm first of all, I'm, I'm clothed. I'm in a structure, a, a home that was built from multiple materials, wood carved from, you know, out of, out of trees and bricks and glass. And I'm surrounded by books that are created from paper and printed using pigments that are created in laboratories you know, on bookshelves made of composite particle board. We're surrounded by things that we built. Mm -hmm. And once we realize that human beings have this distinctive capacity to modify their physical environment so profoundly and to see that those modifications are not universal from place to place, but have changed over historical time, you know, there's every reason to think that we are exerting similar influence on our minds. And if we grant that we need to have biological minds of a certain kind to do this, and therefore there is a biological story to what makes us human, um, we should also respect that that biological story is one that fundamentally involves this kind of plasticity. Right, right. We'll take a quick break, Jesse. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about the book that you're working on, Social Construction. Wonderful. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So 
Rebecca, Jesse, we were talking about how culture has an important uh, effect on how people express emotions, how they recognize them, uh, but also uh, on diseases, uh, mental diseases, especially disorders, I should say, um, how they, uh, the, the symptoms of diseases and certain diseases are only found in certain cultures. So culture appears to have a strong influence on many of these things. You're working on a book, Social Construction, in which you say the culture wars have pit humanistic against scientists, with the former arguing that categories are social, social instructs and that truth is relative to conceptual frameworks. Um, so social constructionists are depicted as science critics, you say, and perhaps even harbingers of the post-truth age. Um, but, but you don't think so. You, you think uh, science is committed to constructionism in some form. Um, so, so before we get the details of this, what, what exactly do you mean by constructionism? Well, it's a metaphor, of course, but the, the basic idea behind social constructionism is um, that the basic things that, that we take to populate our world, the, the categories that we use to identify things, uh, to describe things, to divide things, are not joints in nature. They're not the categories that would exist if we as observers weren't here to divide things up. That whenever we introduce a word to characterize some aspect of reality, we're in a sense making a choice. We could have divided differently. And yeah. those choices are not simply passive. We're not simply, you know, dividing the pie and, and letting it sit. The division itself can have an impact. So this is most pronounced in, in the social world where human classification can impact human lives in quite profound ways. Um, uh, but even in the, in the natural sciences, there are ways in which our systems of classification uh, play a role in organizing, arranging, and impacting uh, reality. So, um, so, so why do you think, so, so you say science is committed to constructionism uh, and you don't really see, um, you know, sort of the difference between what science is doing and what social sciences might be doing. Um, but um, in science, it at least feels more absolute. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't buy that. Well, I, you know, I think science um, is not interested in absolute. Science is interested in um, giving us some understanding and in some domains, some ability to, to control a very messy world. And yeah. scientists know that one way of doing so will be idealization, will be simplification, will be creating uh, stories that are easy to easy to learn, easy to transmit, and that requires a fairly reductive um, explanatory project, coming up with generalizations and laws that that have some robustness. Uh, but there's a, a recognition from the starting gate that the world itself is quite um, quite disorganized, quite messy, quite complicated, quite sensitive to variation across contexts. So I think scientific practice, far from being opposed to these construction ideas, um, in some ways is uh, self-aware as it's, uh, uh, that its fundamental role is a kind of construction. 
why do science? What is science? And one answer is science is a way to make all this messiness more intelligible to ourselves. Yeah. And, and as you said, um, the classification itself has an effect on classification. So it, it's sort of a, a thing that influences itself. So the end outcome uh, depends a lot on the initial conditions. Yes, that's certainly right. And it depends on factors that are, that are you know, quite hard to predict in advance. So um, if you kind of walk through the sciences and, and, and different cases in each, many, many things can make a difference. So um, in physics, you might say, okay, well, of course, uh, planets aren't constructed. These are these big celestial bodies that exist out there in the solar system and, and have been around, uh, many of them, uh, for, for millions of years before we have. Um, the bodies exist, that's true. But once you start to label them and, for instance, call something a star, call something a planet, you are putting it in a group. And it is in that gesture that you're doing some kind of construction. And why? So why do we want to talk about, say, the planets in our solar system? Well, they're, they're interesting objects to study. But in uh, choosing to study them, we've had to decide which things belong to that particular classification. And the, the term planet, which once was defined in a way that included nine celestial bodies in our solar system, <laughs> was recently redefined to exclude one of those nine, Pluto. Right. And Pluto was demoted to what's now called the dwarf planet, um, where the term planet was redefined to have a new condition intentionally designed to exclude Pluto. In particular, planets were, um, were restricted to celestial bodies that clear their neighborhoods, a metaphor basically uh, capturing the idea that the, the, the pathway through which a planet travels um, is not interrupted by something of greater gravitational uh, force. Now, why do they do this? The answer is simple. At the time they did this, they had discovered at more distant locations within our solar system about 200 other celestial bodies that met the then current classification of planets. And they literally were worried that school children would now have to memorize 209 <laughs> celestial bodies rather than what had been a, a very tractable list. Yeah. Um, the definitions are also used in other ways that seem arbitrary. So for instance, asteroids um, are defined as minor planets, but some of them also qualify as dwarf planets. And the reason why they're not planets is just because their size is below a certain threshold and their shape is more imperfect. Now, these are very graded in relative terms. What's the size that makes something a planet? That's an arbitrary cutoff. How round does something have to be to be a planet? That's an arbitrary cutoff. And at the same time, we co-classify things that are extremely different. So if you take gaseous planets and icy planets and rocky planets, these are very, very different kinds of celestial bodies with different properties. And yeah. the planets themselves vary enormously in size, again, creating different, different behaviors. But we co-classify them as planets. So it's just a reminder that there are many, many different ways to carve up nature. And there isn't a given way to do it, even in something as, as physical and real and mind-independent as celestial bodies. The way we choose is usually beholden to a variety of interests. Some of those are scientific, and some of them are as simple as giving our school kids um, an easy time with their memorization tasks. 
Yeah, so it's a matter of convenience. Um, I, I was thinking, uh, Jesse, as you were talking, um, you know, if you take an Amazon tribe or something like that who haven't had any contact uh, with the modern uh, humans, and, and we look at, you know, something that is in common, maybe some categories of nature or something like that, it'd be interesting to see where they ended up <laughs> in this categorization. Do we see any commonality or do we see, you know, totally orthogonal uh, categories? There, there is some work on this. I mean, I, you know, basic question is, are taxonomies, say, of the natural world um, hierarchical? That is, so we have in, say, non-human animals, we can talk about uh, a breed and then a, and then a species and then a broader category like animal above that, um, living thing above that. So we get these kind of nested hierarchies. And um, one might wonder, does every group organize things in, in this kind of way? Um, and there is some variation. I mean, one can organize categories somewhat differently. So for instance, one can co-classify things that interact with each other. So if you think about a kind of ecosystem where there are different um, of living things that, that uh, co coexist, maybe, maybe some insects and some uh, and mammals and uh, some plant forms uh, that share uh, certain behavioral um, routines that engage one another um, mm -hmm. or ways of being in the world that engage one another, that might be thought of as a category as well. So instead of having the overarching category mammal, you might have the overarching category forest dweller or sea yeah. uh, dweller. And there, your taxonomies might begin to look uh, different from the ones we have. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what you're saying here is that it's, met, it's a match of convenience. There's nothing absolute about it. Uh, and where you end up is uh, probably a function of where you started and how you started. Uh, but then uh, you talk about the sort of social construction and social categories, gender, race, disability, mental illness, all, all these things have, as you mentioned, significant policy implications too. And so, so if, you, if you look across cultures, um, do we see differences in these things? Well, absolutely. I think this, you know, the physical sciences, the hard sciences are uh, in, instructive in a way because I do think they're the, they're the limit case. They're the case where we really think nature has joints. And when we start to discover, for example, that the periodic um, table of the elements is full of arbitrary idealizations, like the exclusion of isotopes, even when those isotopes are the more common form of the element in nature, or the inclusion of, you know, dozens of elements that don't actually exist in nature and have to be created in a laboratory. Yeah. Um, or we look in, in biology and see the arbitrariness of excluding uh, viruses from the definition of life or uh, the ways in which a single field um, might, depending on current explanatory goals, define gene differently or define species differently. Those are surprising cases. But when we turn to things like you know, gender and race, there's, a, I, I think, a bigger recognition of the way in which social forces may play a role there. Um, and of course, for the purposes of human life, um, those are classifications that make, make a bigger difference. Um, one might think it's obvious that these social categories are socially constructed. So for example, 
while it was once widely believed that aspects of gender difference in behavior um, had a biological basis, we now readily recognize that many aspects of gender difference in behavior, like wardrobe differences or some differences of taste, have a cultural origin. But the question is, how far does that go? And I think even today in the social realm, where cultural social forces should be our default mode of explanation, there's a continuing tendency to um, biologically construe uh, very aspect, various aspects of human um, identity. This includes sex and gender, it includes sexuality, and it includes uh, race, among others. And for each of these, there are very active research programs trying to identify biological correlates, um, but they're equally active efforts to show that some of some aspects of each of these um, human classifications is mm -hmm. cultural in nature. Have there been, I'm thinking specifically about social categories, have there been any situation in the past where we recognized we we you know it, it's really messy let's uh let's start over let you know <laughs> uh let's go back and recategorize has there been any any such situation in the past in history well i you know we in in some ways uh this is always the history because these classifications change and so for example if you look into the history of racial classification um you know, the, format that we get was a fairly modern invention, post-Enlightenment you know, mm -hmm. invention, where there was an initial move, people, people like uh, Francoise Bernier tried to divide the world into um, people who are, uh, you know, basically began thinking of white, red, yellow, and black, um, you know, African origin, European origin, um, Asian origin, especially there, East Asian origin. Um, and uh, and uh, from from the Americas, indigenous to the Americas, those are not classifications that had existed before, and they have in in many ways changed over historical uh, time. And even now, we're seeing a fair amount of plasticity. So, um, um, in racial classification, we have you know recognitions that vary cross culturally. If you go, uh, you know, say to the African continent. Even in sub-Saharan African, there's a lot of racial demarcations that we wouldn't recognize among African-Americans. If you go to uh, the subcontinent, you'll get different uh, you know, classifications, say, uh, you know, someone from, from Sri Lanka or from the north of the subcontinent who might have more you know, Central Asian um, uh, ancestry. You'll get different racial classifications in South America and place like Brazil. Um, but also historically, you get much finer grain classifications of black and brown people. Uh, in the Caribbean, somebody who might be classified um, as black in North America might be considered a white person um, in, in the Caribbean. So a tremendous amount of variation, and, and these things will get um, negotiated, altered, and changed over time. Even with gender, if you consider the growing visibility of um, not just... Um, uh, intersex and, and uh, transgender people, but also non-binary people, the availability of categories that may have applied accurately to uh, people throughout historical uh, time, the availability of those categories gives people a little bit more um, uh, freedom and recognition in how they end up organizing and constructing uh, their lives. So uh, there's right now a very uh, uh, sort of contested 
uh, debate about whether, say, man and woman should be defined in biological terms, and um, those who uh, who reject those um, definitions, myself uh, among them, um, think that first of all, uh, th these concepts have always been multi-pronged and multifaceted, and there are many aspects to sex and gender uh, that transcend biology. There's also no uniformity or consistency at the level of biological classification. There are many, many different biological schemes. Um, but also, and perhaps mo most importantly, in light of your question, um, categories are not things that get fixed in time. They are things we can shift and alter. So yes. if the demands of social justice, for instance, um, are best served by more expansive notions of, of gender, um, then that's um, a perfectly good reason uh, to enrich those vocabularies. So for instance, in, in, um, in the in Indian context where you have the hijras or in Mexico where you have the mushes, there are recognized third genders. And those change their construal over time. So the term transgender is now being used increasingly um, in India. They changed their legal standing um, and their official recognition. So now in India, you can um, officially be recognized by, by the state um, as, as not being male or female. And in you know, many parts of Western Europe and, and the US in some states, being able to select your um, uh, gender based on your identity rather than your, your birth assignment and, mm -hmm. and in certain places being able to select a non-binary gender um, have become legal realities and increasingly uh, cultural realities as well. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's sort of curious, Jesse, that, you know, the scientific process of categorization, um, you know, uh, take a measurement, take a measurement of a property uh, to put that into a bucket. Um, we don't do that in, in social categorization. We, we appear to use, you know, sort of visible surface features um, that often has no correlation to, uh, if you were to go measure race, for example, of 8.4 billion people, it, it is almost meaningless, right? Uh, and so <laughs> why are these categorization processes so different? I, you know, it, of course, it's going to depend a little bit um, on one's uh, position on, on some of these debates, because there are people who think they, they oughtn't be different, that really um, things are real only if they're real independent of our systems of classification. They're real only if they're not constructed. And then using the physical sciences as a model, they'll therefore assume that the reality of race or of sexuality or of gender requires finding something that's hidden from view. Um, so for instance, there's an enormous um, you know, research into genetic correlates of race. There's an enormous research program into the genetic correlates of, of sexuality. And you know, those, those research programs are very, very well funded. And they speak to this desire to find something in you know, the hidden microstructure of the mm -hmm. world to give it legitimacy. And yeah. the findings tend to be quite um, uh, you know, un unimpressive. Um, so, for example, in the case of homosexuality, and this is just using fairly homo culturally homogenous samples in the U.S. and Great Britain, 
uh, you can find maybe 8% of the variance um, in homosexuality is associated with genes, but not with any one gene, with many, many genes. And the best performing genes account for about 0.4% of the variance. And those same genes are also associated with variants in traits that have nothing to do with sexuality, like smoking or risk-taking or openness to experience. Um, and that's within a homogenous sample. So you keep things culturally fixed and that greatly inflates genetic contribution. Trivially, if you, if you take everyone who has the same nurture, any difference that remains between them will be nature. If you think about looking for, say, gay genes across a broader cultural range, the likelihood of a genetic contribution would drop off from, you know, 8, 8% variance to, to probably near zero. Now, 8% variance means that the lion's share, I mean, by a very large margin, a variation in sexual fantasy and behavior is not genetic. And very similar story can be can be told about race. The concept of race and the human species is biologically meaningless. Mm -hmm. And there are you know, many subgroups, say, in the African, sub-Saharan African uh, uh, continent uh, that are farther from each other uh, than many Africans are from Europeans. So you know, race um, turns out to lack anything at the biological level that, that maps onto our folk um, categories. So I think while many of us are thinking about social kinds as on the surface, as something grounded in human interests and human classification, others are still holding out hope that there is some underlying hidden biological reality. So in some sense, what you're saying is that the measurement is not possible, that there is really no, it becomes sort of meaningless from a scientific perspective. And so we are, in some sense, back to square one. So this is this is a political de decision, really, in, in some ways, right? And so the, the political decision then leads to policies, and, and the policies have um, differing effects uh, on these classification schemes. Um, and so, so we can attempt to incrementally change them. But um, are we getting to a situation that we need to really look at it more systematically, go and <laughs> wipe the slate clean and start over? I, I think the danger with wiping the slate clean is um, it itself, in the interest of justice, can turn into an injustice. So, for example, um, in thinking about race, uh, there have been many people who have wanted to eliminate the category of, of our, our, racial, our racial categories. And some of those people have just been political liberals who, who think that if we uh, can behave in ways that are colorblind, uh, we'll end up with a more just society. And yeah. the critique of that has simply been that colorblindness itself becomes a kind of racism because it, if you already have structures in place that disadvantage people, um, then trying to say make hiring decisions or admissions decisions or mortgage loan decisions um, in a way that doesn't look at uh, color um, or, or sticks in some, some color um, neutral proxy like zip code, you'll end up just re-inscribing uh, the bigotry. So for example, um, you know, there's been a tendency in giving off these problems to artificial intelligence algorithms that give out mortgages or loans as a function of something that's race blind 
that racial bias just re-enters because race has become so correlated with other features that the algorithm ends up grouping by race um, in any case. Um, but yeah. the other thing is there, there are social justice activists who think that race is problematic. Mm. Some because, like Naomi Zak has argued that many people of mixed race uh, are forced into dichotomous categories and there's a long history of injustice associated with things like one drop rules that, um, that classify people on the basis of a very, very little of their ancestry. Um, uh, those kinds of views, um, while I think in certain ways can be construed as aspirationally um, meaningful and carrying with them the demand to recognize a far greater variation than current classifications would allow, they also um, can lead to insofar as race is for many of us a grounding in our heritage that's very important for the construction of identity, very important for the formation of lines of political solidarity that are extremely instrumental to fighting for um, our own um, uh, recognition and justice, and also bound up with aspects of culture that may be sources of, of pride, of recreational interests, um, of uh, life ways that are fundamental to well-being in, um, in human life. So, you know, the idea that somebody can be, um, uh, say, colorblind or, or uh, classified as, as raceless uh, might be an appropriate choice for some, but for many it means that they have to give up on their, their friends, their peer groups, their cultural institutions, uh, their, uh, you know, interests and affections, and that would be a terrible cost. Yeah, but, but I wondered, uh, Jesse, whether it's a temporary phenomenon, it's a transition phenomenon. So if you look at the next generation, the generation behind it, um, you know, will we end up with a Facebook race and a Twitter race, <laughs> you know, something along those lines, right? I, so this is this sort of a temporary transition phenomenon that we're going through? I suspect not. I partially because I think we have cases where we've seen tremendous resilience of identity. Consider in the in the U.S. Um, uh, in the you know descendants of the of the um, you know settler uh, colonists who who uh, conquered this uh, continent. Yeah. Um, many of us who've been here for multiple generations continue to identify as an Italian American or mm. as a Greek American or you know, a Scandinavian American or, or Jewish American, an African American, an Indian American, all of these identities mm. um, preserve in the face of enormous pressure to assimilate, um, preserve in the absence of grounding in language and in, in inaccessibility you know, to the original communities where many of the customs are, uh, you know, can still practice. People continue to eat certain ways, listen to certain kinds of music, um, <laughs> carry out certain uh, pastimes. Um, even aspects of personality um, yeah. may be shaped uh, by those lines of cultural heritage. So I have every reason to think that these things will continue in the case yeah. of race as the internet culture gives us more and more access to shared aspects of humanity as well. Yeah. So, so I want to finish up with uh, another topic of interest for you, artificial intelligence. And uh, I, I'll, uh, I'll tell you my bias, uh, Jesse, and then we can uh, debate a little bit. 
Um, my bias is that artificial intelligence is, is a wrong term. Um, it, what we have is automation, expert systems, mm. um, things that we have had for 50 years from, from the advent of computers. Um, we use math and statistics, we build models, uh, they can predict, they can cluster. But these are things that we have been doing. We just got faster computers and more memory and stuff like that. So I think it's the wrong term to use for the status quo. Uh, and I want to get your perspective on that. Um, if that were true, you know, what's interesting is really to think about what is now called artificial general intelligence. I think that is also a wrong term, but mm. at least we know what we are talking about to some extent, right? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I and mean, I do think um, uh, to the extent that, that most of the implemented contemporary technologies tend to be trained on a single task, um, sure. the term intelligence is, uh, is, is something of a euphemism. I, I don't think there's that much difference between <laughs> you know, an artificial neural network that's been trained to do just one thing and uh, you know, say a, a, an automatic loom for for weaving textiles. They're they're task specific uh, technologies. That said, the you know the advent of say um, you know deep deep uh, learning neural networks has given us a single technology that can be trained to do very very different things. Hmm. And to the extent that we have a technology that's already highly adaptable, depending on the training regimen. We've gotten to a degree of generality that is um, quite unprecedented in the history of technology. Yeah. And I do think some of the work in natural language processing um, platforms like GPT-3 have suggested that you could create, even with contemporary technology, something that could change from at least topic to topic, in this yeah. case in a, in a conversational um, interface, um, quite, quite fluidly, and artificial general intelligence to that extent is, uh, in many ways, still a, a future promise. But we have enough of a whisper of it in contemporary technologies to think that this is is a real uh, and and I think very imminent part of our world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have no doubt that um, you know, with uh, with deep learning neural networks and other technologies emerging. Uh, we can create things that um, that can fool a human, um, you know, data in, data out uh, products that can fool humans, um, you know, to, to look and feel like a human. Um, but as you say, it is still not really intelligence, right? It is it is a tool. Um, it's almost an area of automation in some some sense. You know, they're making these tasks really, really automatable. Um, they are generalizable to some extent, but it they they're not really making. You know, we cannot we cannot deploy them in a lab to go find a new drug. I I don't know. It's I mean <laughs> we may we may get there. Uh, but we are missing certain aspects, right, still. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, I, I have, as you know, a lot of uh, neuroscientists on the show. And the general theme I get is that we are potentially on a wrong track. Uh, the brain doesn't work anything like uh, the artificial neural networks that we currently have. In a way, yes. I mean, the, one, one big difference is... Um 
for understandable reasons, we've tended not to program um, goals in, into our uh, AI technologies or um, maybe misdescribed as AI technologies. You know, we have goals. So we, we want them to do our bidding. So we, we give them the task. And um, we haven't given them the flexibility um, to uh, decide what they want. Um, yeah. And to the extent that uh, some of the most impressive AI uh, technologies involve self-training, mm -hmm. um, we've, I think, resisted that in part because there is a scenario where if we allow a system to decide its own ends and give it the ability to rewire itself to uh, best achieve those ends, we've given these machines a kind of autonomy that makes them ill-suited to the purposes for which they are devised. We want these machines, you know, if you want a machine uh, to do um, research in, in your hospital and you say, okay, well, just come up with your own research um, uh, platform, yeah. uh, we may give it the kind of flexibility that will lead it to make choices other than research. Maybe it'll just uh, want to go and play golf instead. So, um I, you know, I, I think we're keeping these things narrow for, for a reason, but it doesn't mean we're not technologically in, in a position to do that. So just as these self-training machines can have the flexibility to come up with very surprising solutions to the problems we give them, yeah. if we came up with machines that settled on their own problems and to that limited extent settled on their own ends, we might discover machines that come up with new research questions, um, yeah. start seeking out you know, solutions to problems that we hadn't posed for them. And that is a fairly foreseeable um, outcome of, of where technology is currently going. Yeah, yeah that's, it, that's what I think also, Jesse. So I always thought that intelligence is not about solving a known problem. It's about asking questions around unknowns. And if we make um, machines to, uh, to make that transition, then one could argue at some point there would be no difference between humans and machines, right? I mean, in a way, the same issue arises for us. I think we have a tendency to think that innovation is the norm. But in fact, you know, except in, in interesting but, but very uh, modest ways, most of us don't innovate. Nobody would think of coming up with a new um, invention. And we are extraordinarily conformist. I think part of our success is we're great social learners. Yeah. Innovation is sufficiently infrequent that we're able to spread you know, existing modes um, in, in ways that um, involve a, an enormous amount of uniformity. You know, We all wear the same kinds of clothes and drive the same kinds of cars and live in the same kinds of homes and eat the same kinds of foods. And were it otherwise, if everyone was a master chef creating a new cuisine, you wouldn't get enough stability for social transmission. You would get a kind of cognitive anarchy. Yeah. And I, you know, so I, I think a lot of human life has a similar feature to what we see in machines, which is a tendency to, you know, to do what we're told, to put it in somewhat provocative terms. Um, no, no, that, that's exactly right. But the, the larger philosophical question then would be, are humans worth keeping? Are humans worth keeping? Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful uh, question. You know, I, I, obviously, one view is that we're inevitably going to go away, either because 
you know, history is, is long and the planet will, will die and, you know, will or will destroy it. There are ways in which uh, our, our, you know, life in the history of time is, is, uh, is a mere blink of an eye. Um, but there's also this more immediate and impending um, threat of technology, that we will create technologies that are, for the first time in the history of our species, smarter things sharing the same planet. Yes. And just as we have um, exerted dominance over all things that were deemed less intelligence, less intelligent than us, there's every reason to think that embodied um, artificial intelligence that exceeded us yeah. in uh, in cognitive domains um, would want to uh, limit our power. Indeed, we would be the biggest threat to such AIs. You know, uh, short of dumber AIs, we would be uh, in competition and have the ingenuity to try and stop them, and certainly the motivation to try and stop them. Right. So they would sort of, of necessity, want to subdue us. So um, in that yeah. sense, our time is uh, probably limited, especially if we continue with these aspects of technological development. And one answer to that is maybe that's okay. And there's a, a moral yeah. reason for thinking that. And you might say, well, maybe it's okay because you know we haven't earned our keep. We've been so destructive that as a species, it would be nice to be replaced by um, by beings more intelligent than us. Yeah. But another is to say that it's the nature of humankind to be in constant flux, to be adaptive. And maybe the next stage of the human story is going to be a transhuman story. Maybe the next stage will be one where we merge with technology and start to exist just as we've turned our external realities into digital realities where we spend hours a day on social media, maybe we'll turn our internal worlds into digital realities where um, we you know, either upload our brains or um, integrate our biological machinery with external uh, machinery in ways that give us new ways of, of thinking that begin to um, look very much like these artificial technologies that we're creating. So an enhanced human mind that shares the benefits of these new development, but originates in some biological material would no longer be human in the sense that we know it. So yeah. we would end up getting rid of ourselves, but in a way that would involve a more um, agentic, that is a more chosen um, evolution into a new mode of being rather than uh, annihilation through competition with these more intelligent beings. Right. Right. Yeah, my, my view just is, you know, if you if you look at it from an external observer, um, you know, if you sort of draw off the universe's objective function, um, but there is really no, I mean, humans don't really bring a lot to the table. I mean, as you say, they are boring conformists. We all live, you know, sort of boring lives. And um, if something, you know, more interesting in the horizon, for an external observer, that would be much more attractive, right? Well, I, I myself am, am worried about a re rapid change where we don't really see what's coming and find ourselves in an irreversible situation where things that we've cherished in forms of life that we've come to deeply value are under very serious threat. So. You know, with the techno-pessimists who have been sounding alarm bells, I do think we need to really be proceeding with caution. Yeah. 
And, you know, part of that is being a bit more reflective on what kind of lives we want to lead. Um, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with conformity or, or being boring. I think, you know, the idea that, that well-being depends on constantly keeping up with the new next. Yeah. You know, I, I'm using a, a smartphone from, you know, 2015 and a laptop that's about as old. So I've never felt the, the kind of need to walk in lockstep with the latest technology myself, though I am using, you know, smartphones and, and laptops, which I certainly didn't have growing up and, and would be very isolated from the world if I if I didn't choose now. Yeah. So it's it's part of it is is really figuring out what we want and, and finding some some balance. I will say when I reflect on human history um, and I think about the enviable moments where I would love to get in that time machine and go back and, and join that cohort. For me, it's often these uh, times of cultural flourishing. So if you think about, um, say, various art movements, um, or intellectual movements, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, or, you know, you think about, you know, the, the Dada movement um, in, in Zurich um, at, the, at the tail end of the First World War, where you have a group of uh, you know, expats from different countries coalescing together and coming up with new and irreverent ways to, you know, to write, write poems and make paintings and, and do politics. To me, those are uh, really exciting, fruitful, playful, rewarding times in our history. And I think it's instructive to remind ourselves that those were not times that availed themselves of um, the new latest technology. And indeed, in, in uh, that example, certainly were reactions against it. Dada happened because the First World War showed that um, automation, for example, in the form of machine guns and, and airplanes uh, had creating prospects for destruction that were unprecedented in human history. And they said, we need to press the pause and recover um, human dignity. And they did that through, you know, the outrages of art. And I would love to see us get to a moment where there was a bit more um, resistance, um, where in addition to, you know, those who are pursuing the new next, there are people cultivating forms of life that are independent of all of that. And if we don't keep both these uh, futures in view, I think there's a risk we'll go into the techno future in a way that's unprepared for its downside. There is one trend that plays into this also, Jesse. I want to get your perspective on it. And that is, um, there are different predictions around this, but all of our predictions and the timing of those are all wrong. So uh, we can bank on predictions, but... Um, it appears that the, the human population is going to peak at maybe between uh, 9.5 and 10 billion, anywhere from 2060 to 2100. And then we are going to go through a rapid decline of, of world population. Um, there, is, there is only Africa uh, is really, really growing um, Everywhere else, most of the most of the Western countries already have uh, significant negative population growth rates. So the world population is going to peak in in a few tens of years, and then start its uh, decline. That also has a lot of implications for machines, right? I think it does. In in a way, um, and you're quite right to say this is un, unpredicted. Um, 
we're in a moment um, that is precarious in exactly the opposite way we thought it would be. Um, yeah. In the 1970s, people were still full of kind of Malthusian anxieties that the population explosion would lead to an enormous uh, reduction of resources that made, you know, life uh, conflictual and and um, uh, and the world uninhabitable. Um, the opposite has turned out to be true, as far as we can tell at the moment. Yeah. And um, you know, because of that, I think the need to have technology come and fill some of these voids. There, in countries like Japan, that have, you know been very close to uh, immigration, for instance, that are suddenly in desperate need of workers. And to the extent that technology can fill some of those um, those needs, um, there, there may be opportunities for um, them to, uh, you know, continue with, with more closed borders than they would otherwise have. That may be a bad thing. I'm not commenting on that one way or the other, but it is, um, it is a moment where, where we're seeing technology as, as uh, filling a gap. Um, that said, I do think that overall, even with these declines, the rapidity um, with which we'll see uh, automatic um, uh, labor is much, much greater um, than the population reduction um, can tolerate with the current economic arrangements, which is to say, I think within 20, 30 years, we'll see 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of the workforce across many, many sectors being replaced by machines. Yeah. Um, and we're not going to see a 20, 30, 40% reduction in the population. Um, as a result, I think it is inevitable that there will be a very, very sharp rise in unemployment. Mm -hmm. And that's something we need to be uh, thinking very seriously about um, now. For many, it's an opportunity that we could have machines become the productive force of our economies and everybody could live in a massive welfare state where the life of leisure is, is the norm. Um, I think that's a, a utopian possibility, um, um, but one that we could keep in view as, a, as an ideal and should be, um, should be trying to work towards. Um, but the problem is the current economies don't simply allow a transition to that in a fluid way. So people, for instance, have talked um, quite a lot about universal basic income. Yeah. So you can cover people's unemployment that way. But where does that income come from? Hmm. Well, if it comes from government and government is deprived of the tax revenue that it would get from the workforce that's now on the streets, um, their ability to pay for the universal basic income which will be, you know, in the, in the trillions each year, um, is going to uh, diminish as the problem increases. And, you know, at that point, I think there's a scenario where the tech companies um, come in and they say, well, we're producing these technologies and either through coercion, which is to say taxation, they'll start to cover those costs, or maybe they'll volunteer it and say, we'll take care of the needs of the population, but not for free. Um, I think that's a deal they would make only in return for a greater degree of control over markets and over public policy to a point where the concept of government that we've come to understand since the emergence of the nation state in the 18th century will start to become more technocratic, will start to involve private sector technology industries playing a greater role um, in 
organization at the state scale. And that's just a picture we can't at present fully get our heads around. Until we start thinking seriously about that future, I think we're playing with fire. Whether that future is better than the current system or worse is unclear, but on the face of it, um, especially as we see growing inequality um, in, through these technologies, um, on the face of it, it looks like it is one that will not guarantee um, a world that conforms to our current values. And one aspect of that is simply uh, democracy. If you give over political control to a private corporation that's primarily interested in its own profit, um, it seems like that's going to continue what is the current trend, which is corporate control over governments. Recent studies have shown that if you look at political policy in the American federal legislature, um, there is enormous correspondence between uh, policy decisions and near zero correspondence between policy decisions and voter interests in the aggregate. Now, magnify that by making corporate America be the actual holder of political power directly rather than through lobbying. And we have a, an exaggeration, a culmination of the situation that we've been uh, basically designing since, uh, since the inception of, of this country. Um, is that a fulfillment of the American dream or the ultimate indictment? That, I think, is something in future decades, in, in the near term, we're going to have to be asking ourselves. Yeah, I, I, I view this, uh, Jesse, as sort of a binary outcome. Um, the, the transition that we're going to go through, as you say, it's inevitable. So either we have to make sort of a cultural change, a societal change. Um, the problem is not that difficult from a mathematical perspective, uh, you are still using your 2015 iPhone. There isn't much of a difference between 2015 and 2021. So this, uh, this mad rush to get the next toy is part of the, the current culture. So, so that culture has to change. A human being need 2000 calories to, to function. There is so much energy available uh, in the world, if you, if you solve the problem mathematically, you can, you can get to very good positions, but it requires a societal and cultural change. So, so I see uh, pessimistically, Jesse, I see either we're going to perish as a level zero society, or we will transition to a level one society. It's going to look really different. The, the organization structures, the institutions, if they exist, um, uh, the, the meaning of work, uh, everything is going to be very, very different. Um, materialism that, you know, that sort of envelops uh, everything today uh, may change. So that will be a level one society. But if we don't get there, I don't see good exit points uh, from where we are today. I, 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 at a certain fundamental level, I agree with that. I do think efforts to sort of shift out of this trajectory completely mm -hmm. will fail. There, there just is no way to do it. People, you know, talk about regulation and there should be much more regulation than there is. 
Um, but the idea that you can simply stop these, if you think, for example, that AI technologies that are used in war, you know, powerful governments are going to pursue these regardless of what the policy uh, agreed upon by, you know, international bodies says. They have enormous interest in doing so. And we're already seeing the effects. So, um, you know, um, we've seen that, that automated uh, drone weapons uh, yeah. can lead to victory um, in, in long-standing military conflicts. Um, as those become more and more autonomous, um, you know, those methods of fighting war that we've uh, sort of developed in the 20th century will adopt to, to new forms of warfare. And so the, this kind of inevitability um, <clears throat> makes uh, us really have to think about um, more the question of adaptation, as you put it, than, than, the, than the question of, of, um, of you know, avoidance. And it's alarming because human life has already undergone more rapid change in the last uh, century and a half uh, than in all of, of human history. Basically, from the Neolithic to the Industrial Revolution, there's enormous continuity in how human life is organized. Right. And despite great cultural variation in, in detail, you know, the basic pattern of human life was, was pretty uh, much unchanged. Then technology emerged that's pretty dramatic in its impact. Um, now, the growth in that, of course, has been exponential. And if we just think about you know, the advent of, of technologies you know, like, like the, the train, like the plane, um, and, and most recently like the internet, um, the effects on how we just fill our lives, how we move around in the world, the contact we have, um, the distribution of resources, all of that is um, is absolutely um, unanticipated uh, by previous generations and uh, completely rewrites the, the, the human story. Um, right now, we're in a position where we can play a role in how this story gets written. And we're, I think, looking at various strategies. I myself worry that the merging strategy is um, one that puts us at the losing end. Um, once the technologies are developed enough um, that they have autonomy, that they're making decisions for themselves, if we are to merge, I think what is remaining of our humanity is extremely vulnerable. We'll be, you know, if, if somebody said even to you, um, Gil, would you merge with your very closest friend? <laughs> Someone you trust completely and have good grounds to trust. Someone you should trust. No more, no more Italian food in Manhattan. <laughs> so I mean, like when can we think about merging, um, even with with you know friends? Yeah. It's it seems like a suicide. It's a it's a loss. We're no longer the same self. We we can't survive such a merge. Um, now you merge with someone who is fundamentally of a different kind. And in a certain way, by definition, your your enemy, a competitor, with with different goals and different interests, and no biographical history of uh, with you, no, you know, history of of cooperation, collaboration, commitment, no interdependencies with you, um, no emotional bond of love and affection and respect. There, we're extremely vulnerable to exploitation and and destruction. 
So I tend to think that um, the merger solution is not going to work. I tend to think that the alignment solution, which says that we should face the advent of increasingly intelligent machines by programming those machines to have moral values that are somehow consistent with ours or aligned with ours, is basically undermined by the mere fact of human moral relativism. Yeah. You know, that our values are themselves so varied and, and, and some of our human values are quite awful. So even if you just think about local political divisions, you yeah. know, do the technologies conform to Democrat values or Republican values? Um, you know, and I think that's a, a question for which there is no satisfactory answer. So alignment becomes a problem. And I, so for me, as I review these familiar solutions to the threat, I wonder whether we aren't um, really in present in the present moment um, unequipped with a satisfactory answer. Yeah. My own view is we. This is maybe a reason why we need philosophers. Um, it's a reason why we need people to uh, be thinking actively about these problems and leaving them rather than leaving them over to industry. Because if we if we don't stop now, if we don't put a pause on now and think very seriously about what 1.0 looks like, what 2.0 looks like, mm -hmm. then the question won't be answered by us. It will be answered by these technologies or by the corporate interests that are creating these technologies. Yeah, I'm somewhat optimistic of a cultural transformation driven by the next generation. Um, I, I have no data to, to be optimistic about it, but um, just from a, from a purely normative perspective, I think um, that that could happen uh, because, uh, you know, when I look at my daughter and, you know, the, the people that she interacts with and so on, it, it is uh, sort of a different human uh, in some sense. So the, the homocentric views that we, we hold, our generation holds, may not be valid. Uh, for the next generation, right? It, it could be completely rewritten. I, I definitely have tremendous um, you know, hope for and deference to younger generations. I think it's always our place to, uh, you know, step aside and let them take the reins. Um, and those of us who are not raised with these technologies, of course, will have, you know, naive and limited views about, about their potential as well. Um, so it is good to vest our, our hope. Um, and I think there are, you know, other ways outside of the technology question in which, you know, younger generations have proven to be our moral educators. If you think about certain social justice issues, um, it's become a commonplace that it's impossible to watch films from the 1980s because they, they're so cringy in their political incorrectness that to contemporary ears, they, they just sound appalling. And, you know, for many who were critics back then, this is, uh, you know, this is just uh, an insight that, um, that has been slow uh, on the uptake for, for the majority, but, but available to all uh, at the time. But I do think the increasing um, in political engagement of younger generations and a certain kind of open-mindedness. So, you know, if I could put the world in control of any population, you know, it would be like queer youth of color who have, you know, developed whole 
new modes of being in the world, new forms of expression, new political um, lines of alliance, um, new global communities. Um, they have, you know, broken from a very uh, restricted canon that's tended to, in terms of education, that's tended to, um, you know, be navel gazing and, and you know, repeat, repeat old biases and old patterns of knowing and expand that out in ways that's much more exciting and inclusive. Even in my own field, own field the range of topics that people are taking on now yeah. vastly outstrips the range that was available when I was going through my graduate study. So I do see in younger people a, a, a kind of explosion partially fueled by this technology mm. of interest in variation, variations of all kinds all kinds. And for me, that is the most exciting development of the, of the modern moment. Um, and if I ask myself what I want of technology, I think that the answers I would give would be limited by an imagination mm -hmm. that is um, reared on, you know, whatever, 80s movies or, or 80s technology in ways that makes me less equipped to come up with ideas than people who are a decade um, or two um, or three younger. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe, yeah, maybe the, the people who are just coming into school age now are gonna come up with the solutions that we'll all need. And even if they're not the solutions that we old folks would want, um, they're gonna come up with solutions that, that suit their values and their ways of being in the world. And, I think that's how it should be. Yeah, let's hope that happens, Jesse. There are a group of folks working on making Mars great again. That's <laughs> the secondary option. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. This has been great, Jesse. Thanks so much for spending time with me. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Gillen. Thanks for the series. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.